0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon.
2: Good morning, Liz. And I hope you had a great weekend and an enjoyable Labor Day. Uh, today, we're excited to welcome all this Law Professor Barton Edwards, who joined our faculty this year. We're so happy to have him with us. Um, and Martin's going to be on the show today to talk about contracts and the importance of reading what we actually agree to when we sign things either electronically or by hand. So, good morning, Professor Edwards. Would you please tell us a little bit about your background and the classes you teach?
3: Good morning. Good morning, Richard and Liz. And thank you so much for having me, first of all. I am in my first year. Uh, teaching here at Ole Miss. Before that, I taught at Belmont, uh, MC Law in Jackson uh, and Tulane Law as well. Uh, before I became a professor, I uh, practiced law in Jackson at Phelps Dunbar. I worked for the Mississippi Attorney General's Office and Consumer Protection. Uh, and then right out of law school, I clerked for Judge Leslie Southwick, uh, who's a Fifth Circuit judge with Chambers in Jackson. I'm originally from Mississippi. I went to Ole Miss for undergrad. Uh, so I'm, I'm definitely excited to be at Ole Miss and, and happy to, to be on MPB. Um, so uh, I teach uh, contracts and business associations. Those have been my primary courses uh, You know, at MC at Belmont and now here at Ole Miss. And kind of the theme for those two classes uh, are that when people are participating in the economy they're making exchanges with other people and businesses or they're going into business with other people and and kind of pooling their time and and talents, we need some sort of assurance or some sort of security that that everybody's gonna live up to to their end of the bargain so in a lot of ways that's what contract law and business law are there for is to to be an incentive to to live up to your bargains
2: That's great by the way you have some radio background too uh don't you That's right. That's
3: right. Uh, When I was in high school in the the Jackson area, I interned uh, at at, uh, Radio 6, actually the iHeart Radio group of stations over there. I worked primarily uh, on the sports show uh, back in the day, uh, Mississippi Sports This Morning, with Chuck Stinson and Doug Colson. So um, it's really exciting to be back on the air. That was a a lot of fun. I learned a lot.
2: Well, we're glad to have you, and and glad to talk about contracts. I mean, I I think about every time I agree to do an update on my my phone or my computer— I'm agreeing to something. Don't always read it the way I should, maybe. Uh, So when we're talking about a contract, what exactly is a contract?
3: Sure. Yeah. And, and one of the things I kind of want to throw out, because this is something that I think a lot about is, is there's kind of a difference between what the law calls a contract and what the law will enforce as a contract. And then a wide range of contract like or bargaining behavior that, that people participate in. And, and so that's something I think a lot about. But the de- definition that I give for contract to my first year contract students, uh, you know, everywhere I've ever taught is a four part definition comes from the research. Statement of contracts, and it's it's essentially it's an exchange relationship. Uh, we learned as economic people that if we exchange things, we can be better off than if we didn't. I have something you want; you have something I want. We exchange it, and now there's there's more wealth than there was uh, to begin with. Um, the other, the next part is it's created by an agreement; it's voluntary. We we think and believe and want uh, things to to be better than they were, and to to make ourselves better off it contains one or more promises um, that's there because the the idea is that if we need assurance from the law it's because we have a promise someone's gonna have to perform in the future I always like to give an example of Richard suppose that I don't have a kayak but suppose if I did I was going to sell one to you for like three hundred dollars and uh, instead of you just handing me the money and me handing you the product you know, we said we're gonna meet a week from now well we're making promises to each other and uh, if one of us changes our mind or decides to back out or something causes the kayak to be worth more or less in the future uh, then maybe uh, you know we need some assurance that we're gonna gonna perform anyway so we we have more than one promises and then the last piece and this really gets at that idea of whether a contract is a legal contract is it has to be a, a subject matter that the law says is enforceable. And my favorite example of this, uh, is, is a gambling contract. So, uh, now let's pretend I'm not a lifelong Ole Miss fan. I didn't go to Ole Miss for undergraduate. And while I was at Tulane, I became a big Tulane football fan and Ole Miss and Tulane, uh, play this weekend. Say we're going to have a bet on that, like a hundred dollars. And, and, you know, if, if Ole Miss wins, you get the hundred. If Tulane wins, uh, I get the hundred. Uh, So I give you my hundred dollars and then, uh, you know, Ole Miss wins the game. Right. And and I say, well, this is terrible. I want out. Right. Well, the law will give me my money back right? The law will give me my money back because that contract under Mississippi law is void. It's void uh, from the beginning. In fact, uh, the Mississippi code has a provision uh, that my wife and daughter could even uh, sue you to get that money back for their benefit as well. So that's a great example of something that's a, a bargain uh, in the real world, and it might even be paid off. Uh, and then the law comes in and says that was a void contract. It's not a legal contract. So that is that is the legal definition of a contract.
2: Well. Okay who can enter into a contract you mentioned um again you can have illegal contracts that are not enforceable but what who who is able to even enter into a contract
3: uh, really any any adult uh, that is not lacking in capacity uh, the best example of this and I kind of do a little example of this on my first day of contract class is that people who have not attained the age of majority are said to lack contractual capacity now what's interesting about this is that in Mississippi the general definition of the the line between an adult and a minor is actually 21 years old and it, it says that if you're under 21 year old years old you're you're an infant now my daughter's three years old that Probably in common parlance, that makes her a toddler, a kid even. Uh, But I like to think that she'll be an infant until she's 21. Uh, But there's a separate statute that says that 18 is the age of contracting. That's consistent with most other states uh, around the country. Uh, If you're under the age of 18, we say that you enter into uh, voidable contractual obligations. And that means uh, that the minor can what we call disaffirm, or I just say back out of the contract. So let's, let's take my kayak example again. Suppose I make a deal uh, with you, know, a 16-year-old high school junior over at Oxford High, and he's going to buy my kayak for $300 a week from now. Say he calls me and says, I'm so sorry, sir. I've decided not to buy it. Well, I'm just out of luck, right? That was the risk that I took. You know, they would enforce the contract against you, Richard, right? You would come along, and you'd have to pay me the money or pay me some sort of of remedy. Uh, but the 16-year-old can back out of they can They can declare that contract void because they, uh, you know, can cannot... Uh, they don't have what we call contractual capacity. The other two examples uh, are, are a lack of capacity due to, due to some sort of, uh, you know, mental illness or something along those lines. Someone might not uh, know what they're doing because of some lack of of mental capacity. And the other one is intoxication. And that one can get kind of kind of uh, hairy fast in the sense that, you know, someone, it's not just, oh, hey, you know, you had a couple of beers and made a deal. You might very well be bound to that, but someone could be uh, intoxicated and, and and you know, kind of out of their their element, and not be able to to bind a contract. But yeah, other than that, uh, if you're an adult, uh, you can enter into a contract.
2: Well, now, do all contracts have to be in writing, or can there be oral contracts?
3: Uh, the short answer is yes, lots of contracts. Many contracts can be oral contracts. Now, uh, as lawyers, I think we would tell anyone that best practices are to make sure you get your contracts in writing. And, and what that is, is because there's a certain um, you know seriousness that goes along with writing a contract. There's a certain seriousness and clarity of purpose that goes along with seeing what you're agreeing to uh, in writing and, and then signing it. But generally speaking, contracts can be oral. Now, there is one uh, set of exceptions to that. We call that. The statute of frauds. It's named after an old English law called a statute for the prevention of frauds and perjuries. And it recognizes that there are some extremely sensitive transactions uh, that the process of proving an oral contract, which quite literally would be the two alleged contracting parties going into court, testifying before the jury that there was or wasn't a contract or what the terms were. And if the jury believes someone uh, who was, was, um, who was who was telling a lie, uh then that person could end up with the other person's property or with a promise to to pay their debts or something along those lines. So just the the quick rundown of those sales of real property like your house or your farm, those have to have some sort of writing signed uh by the party that is is denying the existence. Uh, contracts and consideration of marriage, uh, a guarantee or surety ship where one party promises to answer for the debt. Uh, of another, uh, an executor to personally guarantee the debt of an estate, which normally the executor doesn't do. Uh Any contract that can't be performed within, it, a lot of places it's one year. In Mississippi, it's actually 15 months. That one is fun for the 1Ls to kind of, what does it mean to be performed within a year, within 15 months? Uh, and then the good old Uniform Commercial Code uh, has uh, a transaction involving goods that's more than $500. So our, our kayak transaction doesn't have to be in writing. It's only $300. Uh, but if the price was a really nice kayak and the price was a $1,000, then uh the UCC's uh, statute of frauds would uh, would have us have to have that thing with a bill of sale or some sort of of writing.
1: Well, I guess this is where the pen and the cocktail napkin come into to play for having a written contract. If you have a question about contracts, maybe you're in one, you want to have one or you've got a question about something. This is your day to call in. You can send us an email to our address. Legal Terms at mpbonline.org. This is In Legal Terms. Not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live, so if you've missed any of the program, you can listen to the whole show from our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Now, we may think that contracts are a a written thing, but contract history scholars are aware of a 4,300-year-old written purchase sale agreement from 2300 BCE. So if you think you don't need a written contract, folks have known for quite a while that written contracts are useful. We are talking about contracts today with our guest, Professor uh, Martin Edwards from the University of Mississippi School of Law.
2: Yeah, this, this is fun because, you know, now we get into some fun stuff about contracts, which are always fun anyway, I think. But but Martin, you know, let's talk about some interesting real-life situations involving contracts. And, uh, people may, I, I asked my class this morning, probably I shouldn't have asked them about this because probably none of them have heard of Van Halen, really. But <laughs> mm-hmm. the band Van Halen notoriously had a clause in their contract, Forbidding brown M Ms, uh, uh, and and would you please talk about that contract and why they would have done that?
3: Sure, absolutely. So as you might expect, uh, if a band is going to go play somewhere, they're going to enter into a big, complicated contract with whoever's promoting the contract, whoever's operating the venue. Uh, and that is going to have kind of your standard issue stuff. What do the rock stars want uh, backstage? What do they want in their dressing rooms? And, and in this big list of things that Van Halen put in the contract for their dressing room, we want this sort of beverage. We want this sort of food. They said, we want a bowl of brown M&Ms. And then in, in uh, all caps with exclamation points, it said absolutely no brown ones. Uh, and there were some versions of this contract that it's been reported even said that if we find a brown M&M, we have the right to cancel the show and you're going to lose all your money if, if you have that brown M&M. Now, you might be forgiven after that first conversation part of the conversation uh, about what a legal contract is and you put a term in there and you expect it to be binding on the parties. But what was interesting about this is that Van Halen didn't put this contract provision in there because they wanted to sue somebody over missing the Brown m and Brown M&M's taste the same as any other M&M. Uh, they didn't you know, have any intention of canceling the show for the Brown m and So the reason that they did it, according to David Lee Roth, was he said, look, we were the first rock band to really go on the road with really powerful lighting, uh, really heavy stage." equipment uh, sort of things that if you didn't run the right electrical wiring, uh, you could have, you know, the lights you may in the best case scenario, they don't work. Uh, but in the worst case scenario, there's a fire. Uh, maybe the stage sinks into the ground because it can't bear the weight. Maybe it buckles and breaks. Someone gets injured. Someone gets killed. And so you might think again, well, we'll just put a bunch of instructions in there and, uh, make sure they follow them, make sure they run the right cords. Well, if your contracting partner is insistent upon cutting corners, saving money, um, Those words aren't worth the paper they're printed on. So what Van Halen was out to do is to say, how closely are these people reading the contract? And are they willing to comply with contract terms that may not appear to them uh, to matter? So if they found a brown M&M when they got to the dressing room, uh, it wasn't just an excuse to trash the place and and do the whole rock star thing. Uh, It was a warning to Van Halen that, hey, we need to send our people and look over every single nut and bolt and electrical connection in this entire building because this group of people is someone who doesn't take the contract seriously or or doesn't um you know or maybe they haven't done something right so they never intended to sue over this they probably wouldn't have won a lawsuit over brown m&ms but it it was there hiding in an ordinary written contract uh but for reasons other than uh being pursued as a legal claim
2: it's really kind of brilliant uh you know that they did that and you know let me ask this I mean so If I sign a contract without reading it, am I still bound by it or can I use, excuse, oh, I didn't really read that part of it.
3: Uh, Most of the time, the answer is you are gonna still be bound by it, okay? So the normal scenario, uh is that the written contract will be presented to you in some way and and really as long as the other party puts that in your hands and gives you an opportunity to read and ascertain the terms uh you're going to be bound to it they they we we teach that and we call that the duty to read so if you are made aware of the terms on which you're entering the contract and you sign that paperwork it doesn't matter whether you actually read it or not it doesn't matter whether you actually uh, know it's there or what's in there. Uh, what matters is that you had the opportunity, you're aware of those terms, had the opportunity to read and ascertain them, uh, you will be bound by them. Now, there's some you know exceptions to that at the far end. If there's some term in there that's extremely and oppressively one-sided, the court might call that unconscionable but i like to tell my students that's really uh, a a true kind of end of the road hail mary type argument it's very rare uh, that something will will be invalidated on grounds of unconscionability
1: i'm just thinking of all every single a cell phone app, every single website that you have to, you know, accept. And sometimes you have to scroll all the way down to the bottom to, to click. And nobody really reads. Well, I'm assuming 99.999% of people don't ever really read that. But if you want to exchange, if you want to uh, use that particular service, you just accept and move on.
3: Yeah, and, and, and that's exactly right. And in terms of enforceability, uh, what you describe where they present that contract, all those words to you, and, and a lot of times they'll actually make you scroll through with your thumb or your mouse before they'll even let you click a button that says accept. And what they're trying to do is fit within those cases that have said if someone presents you the terms of the contract and gives you an opportunity to read, you have a duty to read that contract. And if you don't, you're going to be bound by it either way. So we We use a funny little word for that called click wrap. Click wrap is what we call that when you have to scroll through that thing and and click it. And there's many cases out there where courts have said seeing that contract in front of you in that click wrap format. Uh, is enough to to get your assent, and um, I, I'll go back to should you read them or not. I, I played a mean law professor trick on my first uh, you know first or second day of class with my students, my first year law students. I said, "How many of you read those things very very seriously?" And of course, nobody raised their hand. I said, "I'm I'm ashamed to hear that. Uh, you're future lawyers, you're coming here to law school. You ought to read your contracts." And I don't read them either. Yeah, I <laughs> sign up for many things. I, I'm a contracts professor, and I don't read them. And one of the things. I think that gets to uh, that's interesting is that uh, these are what we would call standard form contracts. You know, everybody gets the same contract, and and often that occurs in a circumstance where everybody gets the same product. You know, I'm sitting here talking on my Blue Yeti microphone. I understand that Richard also has a Blue Yeti microphone that he uses. Chances are we have the same microphone. Uh, chances are we have the same warranty. We have all these standardized product features that hopefully make us sound good on the radio. Uh, and in the same token, we get a standardized contract along the way. It saves us Time it saves us money because uh, the the seller can not only standardize the product for our convenience, they can standardize our contract.
2: Well, I have a, a colleague who used to talk to the, the first year students and say, "You'll never uh, you'll never sign up for a Kroger card the same way as you used to before you went to law school because you know it's like you check to see what it is you're signing away when you get your Kroger card." But we're not great. I asked my class this morning in preparation for this this. Um, The show. How many of you read your auto insurance policies? And nobody raised their hands, including me, because it's just again, yeah, standard policy. I just hope they cover me. (laughs) And uh, and so you know that. But what it was okay. Let's say I I sign this thing and I agree to it, and then I breach it. What what are the consequences of breaching a contract?
3: Uh, well, the legal consequences of breaching a contract are, are generally going to be you you go to court. Uh, someone establishes there was a contract, establish that you failed uh, to live up to your contract. And then usually the question is going to be, what is the court uh, going to award uh, the other party in, in terms of damages? And and um, sometimes the court will order, depending on what type of contract it is, they might order you to actually go through with whatever you promise to do. This might be, yeah, I don't know, uh, you know if you've got a, a house somewhere that has a you know, walking distance to the square or walking you know, ocean view down in, uh, you know, down on the coast somewhere. Uh, the court might make you sell the house if you decide to breach that contract. But normally they're just going to give the other party some money. They're going to find out, uh, you know, what it was that would make that person put them in the position they would have been if they've gotten the, the benefit of the bargain.
1: We've got Jim from Ocean Springs on the line. Jim, we're glad you're part of In Legal Terms. What's your comment or question?
0: Yeah, hi. Uh, so so a lot of laws are put in place. They're, uh, they're laws by the, the, the state and everything. Uh, so how can you waive a right and it be enforceable? So, like, let's say, well, Mississippi's a right-to-work state, a lot of southern states, Florida, uh, right-to-work states. I had, uh, I had a job... Uh, I picked up a job in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and um, and this this employer he didn't want competition. He didn't want his uh, workforce to later branch out, and uh, it was a craft craft uh, and service. He didn't want his workforce to go out and be comp- competitive with him, so he had to sign a uh, uh, a work that we wouldn't work within a hundred miles of uh, Fort Lauderdale. Um, and well, in Florida, but it's a right to work state. So I, I was like, "That's not enforceable. Could that be enforced still in the court if I sign it?" All
3: right, so I'll I'll jump in on this one. This is a, a, a tough question. I, I kind of want to separate separate out two things. One, the right to work. It's often more about whether you have to join a union to have the right to participate in the unionized work. But the other issue you raise is, is what's called a non-competition agreement. And, and a lot of times employers will, uh, put these in their employment contracts, uh, so that if you leave their employee, you won't go and exercise uh, skills against them. Now, originally, you imagine a scenario where you have uh, a type of business where you might hire a salesperson. You hire that salesperson. You give them a bunch of secret proprietary information about the business, customer lists, and uh, uh, you know, proprietary information about the product. If that person takes that and sets up a competing sales shop and takes your, uh, you know, the the employer's business with them, uh, then that might be a legitimate interest. The law protects. And that might be a situation where the court uh, would enforce that. Now, we've gotten into a situation, and it sounds like it might be like yours, where employers are using non-competition agreements fairly indiscriminately. You will even see these in like a fast food employment contract. Somebody goes uh, to cook fries at McDonald's for minimum wage, and they agree not to ever uh, go cook fries at Burger King for the next, you know, 100, uh, you know, a next for within 100 miles or so often. That's led the Federal Trade Commission to uh, start to make some rules about whether you could could do that or not. And in that circumstance, uh, it very mel- well may be the law soon uh, that that non competition agreement would no longer be enforceable under the, the rules that the FDC has laid out. Each of those cases are different Uh, every time, every line of business is different. Uh, And so the enforceability of a non-competition agreement is often something that ends up in court with the court uh, deciding whether that's a reasonable restraint on competition or whether it's not a reasonable restraint on competition.
1: Jim, did that help you?
0: Yeah, well, I was was also thinking of like some like um, some basic rights, um, I, I can't. Uh, other than that, that work right. But like the, but I mean, so if can I like, so it'd be like I can waive certain laws from applying to me. So like, let's say I, I waive the right of murder. So I mean, so I have the right to murder with. Um, so there's a law. So let's say I make a contract and I waive my right to be charged for murder. So that, therefore, the charges of murder don't apply to me. That's what I'm kind of thinking is like, oh, now, I, hey, the charges of murder don't apply to me. So, I mean, what about something like that? I mean, would is well, that I think, I,
3: I, yeah, I think it's pretty clear that you can agree with someone uh, that you were allowed to murder them. So I tell my students that with contracts, you can make your own law in a lot of spaces. But as you observe, there's absolutely limits to that. And so kind of going back to the context of a non-compete, we like to think, hey, I've got a right to make a living. And if I'm a a tradesperson, I'm a skilled craftsperson, I have a right to apply my trade or or participate uh, in my craft if someone will hire me for jobs. Uh, Over the years, the courts have not given the same stature to economic rights as they have perhaps to other individual rights involving, you know, life or liberty and or, or that sort of thing. And so, again, you know, you can... Contract away to some extent your right to do your job for someone other than this particular employer. But courts, you know, kind of maybe uh, more to your point, courts are much more suspicious of that than they are to giving up other rights. We say, like, you have a right to, you know, most people have the right to, you know, file a lawsuit in court. Well, if you agree to arbitrate your claim, courts are much more likely to say, go and, and, pursue your claim in arbitration, whereas courts are are a little bit more willing to uh, invalidate that non-competition agreement if the court concludes that it's not reasonable. So there's there's kind of it's almost like a continuum or kind of a, you know, some some rights are are more absolute than others and some are subject to reasonableness. But absolutely a great question. Thanks,
1: Jim. We're glad you've called in. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We do hope you'll subscribe to our podcast or find MPB Think Radio recordings from the website mpbonline.org slash radio. So if you are a contracts fan and you're a movie buff you want to watch these movies with contracts at the heart of their plots oh and these also uh m- maybe if you're a contracts professor and you don't want to teach one day you could put this movie on for your students so we've got um, shrek forever after the hobbit an unexpected journey Disney's The Little Mermaid, which is popular right now, and Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. All of them have contract issues. So we're learning from an early age all about uh, contracts. And our host today is Professor Martin Edwards from Ole Miss. So do do. Do university professors ever put on a movie when they don't feel like uh teaching like uh elementary or high school teachers do?
3: I I'll, I'll admit to having done it before um in my business associations class I will show a documentary about the 2008 financial crisis, how it happened, uh the contracts if you will that were at the heart of it, the impact on the economy and and of course, the impact on the law, a lot of the legal and regulatory and financial economic environment we live in, uh, comes directly from, from 2008. If it didn't come from the accounting scandals of Enron and WorldCom and those sort of things back, uh, even before the financial crisis. So sometimes, uh, I'm okay at, at explaining why, um, you know, different things that happen in the economy impact the law in a certain way. And sometimes it's better uh, to let the talented expert filmmakers present it to them in a way that might be more entertaining than me talking about it
2: all i do in wilson estates is play uh, music videos about death so i play actually played uh today i played a jimmy buffett song in honor a, a, a tribute to jimmy buffett who lost recently but uh yeah so no movies but i think it'd be a great idea so
1: <laughs> well we even had a podcast one time professor gershon about legal movies and what they got wrong we have a caller from Chickasaw County. It's Mame. We're glad you've called in to In Legal Terms. What's your comment or question?
0: My, this is Mamey. Uh, my question is, how are you do process rights like omitted when it comes to certain government agencies that you can't sue? And also... The arbitrary clause that you send with certain service companies that you have to go through arbitration before you can uh, go to court.
3: Um I I can pick up on the arbitration side of the question. Um I'm a little bit rusty on the when you can sue the government and how you can sue the government that all flows from the Mississippi Tort Claims Act if you're suing the state. Uh yep, there's Requirements you have to give notice of your claim and, and a number of things along those lines. But like I said, I'm a little rusty on that. Um, it is arbitration is really extremely common now and probably more common than, than it has ever been. And across all sorts of different contracts that, uh, maybe the, the usual story on arbitration is that it is a uh, less expensive and less time consuming process for two large businesses that have maybe a minute dispute over the quality of a product that one sold or the other, uh, maybe, uh, they go to arbitration, and that's a, a less expensive way that saves them time and money. Uh, to some extent, that argument applies in the case of the business-to-consumer contract. Uh, it is less expensive overall uh, to conduct uh, cases in arbitration, but I think there many have raised concerns about whether arbitration is perhaps more business-friendly than it is consumer-friendly, and that might be both as a procedural matter. It's uh easier for a consumer to get a lawyer and go to court uh, and and go to the courthouse that's right there uh you know maybe for you in chickasaw county than to go to uh, an arbitral forum or, or meet an arbitrator a mediator that might be in some other place um so generally speaking courts have enforced those and and the rationale is usually something along the lines of if it saves the service provider money in the long run, that will result in, and if it's your electricity, that might result in lower rates than you would pay otherwise. But that's something that um, certainly there's a lot of conversation about and something that we're going to be continuing to see uh, a lot of legal movement about as time goes on.
1: Professor Uh, Gershon, do you have a comment on this?
2: No, I think that's right. And and in terms of the Torts Claim Act, it really is a way to protect governmental entities from, you know, having to feel lots and lots of suits. But there are ways to do it. You would just have to, on a particular issue, you'd have to go to a lawyer day to get help with that because uh, it's real specific. But it's the only avenue for actually then suing the state or state employees. Um, And so, uh, you know, it's... It was it's designed again to protect protect the state from lots of lawsuits. But um, let's talk a little bit about, if we can, um, something that Liz sent uh, prior to the show, and I think it's a great link. Uh, It's uh, about a woman who was actually rewarded for reading her insurance contract. So, can can you or Liz talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, I just I I found it extremely interesting and. I guess it, uh, it, it speaks to what really are you agreeing to? There was a woman in the United Kingdom who was buying trip insurance and she actually took the time to read the contract. And as a, I guess a promotional stunt, the insurance company just had a little line in there that says, Hey, if you're reading this and you let us know you read it, we'll give you $10,000. And it was a way to publicize it, but it just kind of shows you don't you know, if you don't read your your multi-page contracts, you don't know what all is in them.
3: That, that's exactly right. And, and I think that gets back to a lot of the themes we've been talking about. There's these what we call standard form contracts or maybe uh, more pejoratively uh, boilerplate clauses that are, are there for no they're there for some reason but they're just a lot of, of text or uh, even a contract of adhesion you don't have a choice in the matter you must adhere to what the other side Wants and and I think this company's promotion uh, recognizes that normally the incentives to any individual contracting party to read every detail of the contract is the same as reading every detail of the specifications of of my microphone. But the other thing it points out that I think. Uh, applies in a lot of areas of law is that chances are someone out there is going to read it. Uh, and and that person is performing a public service to the rest of us that don't read it in the sense that they're going to find out if there's a particularly objectionable clause uh, and might cause everyone else to pay attention when they wouldn't have otherwise. And so I think this company recognizes and maybe in some ways it's a you know, a, a not intentional concession that we've put a lot of boilerplate in standard terms that we're not going to budge on, but maybe, uh, we're also going to give you a chance to, to make that worth something to you if you, you send in your email and, and we select you for a prize. So uh, a great story of fun story. I know, um, I don't remember where it was, but a professor did this with his syllabus. He put in somewhere in his his long syllabus full of boilerplate. If you'll go to a locker somewhere in the building uh, and you'll put in this combination, you'll find a $100 Amazon gift card. And you can take that as you're the first person who does it can take that as as their gift card. Uh, And nobody went and got it through the entire semester. So yeah, the the other story turned out better.
1: So with our previous caller, Jim, in Florida with the non-compete I guess that employer is welcome for as long as they like to include that in their contract. And then the first person who decides, well, I don't really agree to that, and then decides to sue him for it, you find out how enforceable it is. And then, you know, he will can decide further on whether he wants to include that or not.
3: And and I'll add something else to that. Uh, it may be that uh and and I before we moved here to Oxford, we lived in Franklin, Tennessee when I was teaching at Belmont. We bought an old house, a real fixer upper, and had to fix it up. And I learned very quickly uh that trades are in high demand. Uh and and they can name their prices and they can name their time frame. And if you're out there and and you're trying to get a, a contract term or get your employees to sign a contract term that they view as unfair to them or that impedes uh, something that that is their right to do, uh, you may lose out. You may find yourself having to, to jettison that contract term uh, because of not because a law or a court told you to, but because you don't want to have a reputation in the, the community or you don't want to have to struggle to find workers. So that's uh, another thing that I want to kind of impress on listeners. There's a lot of mechanisms out there in the world other than the law uh, that will will um, cause people to live up to contracts or change the way they contract without ever having to go to court or without ever having to be sued or, or sue an employee and lose on a, on a non-compete.
2: You know, you, you and I were talking during the, the break about some some movies that, you know, we we've raised some movies before. I mean, so let's talk about the Pepsi Jet, you know, what, what, what was that all about?
3: Yeah, so this is a golden age to be teaching contracts and that uh, particular case is in a lot of of contracts, uh, case books, course books. And um, uh, essentially, uh, some of you may remember Pepsi had a promotion going on uh, called Pepsi Points, and the idea was that you would drink Pepsi, and uh, each one had you know one or two Pepsi points. You might peel off the label or cut out a piece of the can, and you would gather up your Pepsi points, and and you would send them in, and you would get little toys, you know, or something like sunglasses, or a jacket, or a t-shirt. And to promote this, they put a commercial on TV. And the the story sort of went uh, that there was a kid who was going to fly the Pepsi jet, the Harrier jet, the Harrier fighter that has vertical takeoff and landing uh, and long range uh, missiles attached to it and and so forth, that he was going to fly that to school and that you could get one for only 7 million Pepsi points. So um, the the story went, was that a true offer to sell someone a jet if they could collect Seven million points, or and this was kind of the the key to it you didn't have to collect all the Pepsi points if you wanted some sunglasses and you only collected a hundred and they were one hundred and fifty points you could buy more points for ten or fifteen cents each so of course, this guy came up with a check for about seven hundred thousand dollars and he sent it and and asked for his jet and then the the legal proceedings uh proceeded on whether Pepsi had legitimately offered or had had seriously uh, or reasonably offered to sell him a jet. And, of course, that is documented in the documentary on Netflix, Pepsi, Where's My Jet?
1: Oh, I also like the waitress who was promised a Toyota if she earned so many points or got so many five-star ratings, and then she worked really hard and then was presented with a toy Yoda, not the Toyota. Uh, she had uh, thought she was working to earning towards. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. So if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show from the MPB Think Radio YouTube channel. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Don't forget 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays following our over-the-air broadcast. You can hear Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. Just saw her walk by. Hey, so Samuel L. Jackson has a clause that allows him to golf twice a week during his movie shoots. Queen Latifah has included an anti-death clause in her contracts. Her quote is, if I die, I can't be in the sequel. So she doesn't die in her movies anymore. And Juliana Margulies wouldn't agree to star in The Good Wife unless her contract stated she was allowed to wear a wig because she had to have perfect hair all the time. We're talking about contracts with Professor Martin Edwards. We've got one last call. Let's get to Debbie in Biloxi. Debbie, we're so glad you've called in. What's your comment or question? I have a question. I have a question about... uh... My car, the Lemon Law, I am under contract, I'm sure, with the car dealer, and I'm having some trouble. I've only had the car about uh, a week and a half, and I'm wondering about that Lemon Law in Mississippi and how
0: it, uh, how it works.
1: Professor well, Edwards, uh, can you do this, or do we need to get her to call in to AutoCorrect on Thursdays at 10 a.m. with Coach Charlie, whose email is auto at mpbonline.org.
3: He'd be much better at fixing the actual problem. Uh, that is one thing about the limits of the law is that it can say what it says, but in, in terms of fixing the problem, he's probably probably better there. Um, yeah, I couldn't give you any specifics on the Mississippi Lemon Law, just to kind of put it back in the context of of the show. I tell my students a lot in, in my contracts and when I teach an upper-level commercial law class uh, that cars are different the law treats them different uh, a lot of times. And, and very often uh, there is a a separate law that maybe has things as kind of the first caller was talking about that you simply can't contract out of and that you can't do. Uh, So certainly I would talk to a lawyer about your rights under the lemon law. Uh, You would also want to talk to a lawyer about your rights uh, under the uniform commercial codes, warranties that, that sellers give to buyers and warranties that, that come with the car. Uh, That's something that the, the ucc will provide and that uh contracting out of them uh is is usually not as simple as just writing a contracting term you know the attorney general's office uh promulgates a form if you want to try to escape warranties in certain circumstances so uh certainly something you would talk to a lawyer about to see if some of those car specific laws uh would override the the normal uh uh uh, contract rules. And as in all cases, uh, no matter what kind of, of agreement it is, uh, go go look and read in it and see what it says. It might give you more rights uh, rather than take them away. You never know.
1: Debbie, good luck with that. I hope you get that resolved. So, Professor uh, Martin Edwards, what uh, give, us, uh, <laughs> give us one minute. Give us one minute. What should we look forward in the next contract we get?
3: Um, I mean, I I would doubt you would find a contract that doesn't have an arbitration clause in it. Uh, Another thing you might find is called a class action waiver. Uh, you agree not to join, you probably get emails from a a company and they're going to pay you $9 uh, for something you don't even remember them doing, but somebody filed a class action, Um, you might be asked to waive that right and and you might do it. Uh, And now Amazon tried to do this uh, a few years ago, get a class waiver. And some very uh, enterprising plaintiff's lawyers uh, had each of their clients file individual claims in arbitration against Amazon. And Amazon finally relented and say, you know what, maybe we'll do the, class action after all uh, elon musk's uh, twitter i guess x now is facing a number of these same individual claims uh, in arbitration it's going to cost him about three million dollars in fees just to start the arbitral processes so we'll we'll see how much longer class action waivers or parts of contracts or whether uh the the consumer has sort of struck back
1: Thank you. Professor Martin Edwards, a new professor at Ole Miss School of Law, we will have to have you back to talk about some of the other classes that you teach. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. That's going to wrap us up for In Legal Terms. Our team consists of board engineer and podcast producer Abram Nanny, and we thank uh, Jermaine Flood and Jason Klein for answering our phones. So for Professor Richard Gerson, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.